Hello, I'm Greg. Let's have an inappropriate conversation about someone called the author and the concept of different drummer. first show was something of a mission statement for the program. This week, it's cards on the table time. Why am I so set on keeping this program at a first name basis? Well, part of it is a religious philosophy. There's a notion that says a great deal of good can be done in this world if you're not too careful about who gets credit. I am not speaking for, from authority, and I am not trying to pull any credit toward myself. In fact, one of the things I want to do is give credit, and we'll talk about to whom a little bit further into the program. Another reason, though, is that I'm no saint. Will I speak forcefully in this show? Yes, I will. Am I going to spout off about things that I believe are true? Absolutely. How good am I at practicing what I preach? Well, not very. And to make that point clear, I want to introduce you, posthumously, to someone called the author. The author goes back all the way to my years in school and came about at a time when it was necessary, if I was going to express myself, to do so with a great deal of anonymity. I didn't have the kind of identity at school that had more public talents. I wasn't very active in sports. I did try my hand at musical instruments, but that wasn't necessarily uh, you know, a popular venture. Even in the realm of musical instruments, I wasn't really that good at reading music. I've always been more of a by-ear person, and my love for music is based more on what I hear than by what I personally perform. I'm one of those people who can't see the musical note on the page and hear that tone in my head, but I do have the ability to see the musical note on the page, know what note it is, and play that note on something like a keyboard. So I didn't really have the ability to step out as a performer in that sense. But the one you know talent or, or at least avocation that I had was writing. And there's a certain amount of risk if you write things that are somewhat explicit in nature, especially when you're you know, in high school. Now, let me give you a little bit of background about what high school in America was like decades ago when I was there. This is before the era of the middle school. So when you've got a junior high school and high school divide, the junior high school tended to be grades 7, 8, and 9. So you have people, even in the ninth grade level, mostly are not driving yet. Um, you have what I think in Europe we might call the, the fourth form would be pretty much where we pick up of high school, kind of that 10th grade sort of an age. Um, and this was before that. So high school was 10th, 11th, and 12th grade, or the sophomore, junior, senior years of schooling. And it was in those years that I began to write and put things out, both to be funny and to be provocative. And to do so, you almost have to protect yourself, put a little veil of secrecy. So to come up with a pseudonym seemed to me a little funny and a little obvious to just call that pseudonym The Author, capital T-H-E, and the word author. So like first name was The Article, The, and last name was Author. I have a funny story to relate about a friend of mine um, named Jacob who has a similar 
situation where you know you can get in trouble in school if you're putting out material that the school might feel is provocative. And um, he apparently got in trouble once with school for selling a tape, a demo tape of, of one of the bands he was in. And the name of that particular tape was, If I Love Jesus, Does That Make Me Gay? I just, on many levels, find a great deal about that title that, that I like. Um, it's provocative. It's interesting. Uh, perhaps unwittingly, it, it acknowledges Jesus. That's always good enough for me, at least as a starting point. But the whole concept of gender relationships, what does it mean to have a friendship that's intense enough that you could call it, you know, a, a loving relationship? Maybe I'm just the only kind of person who would pick up on that. You know, see that level in it. But just from the perspective of the joke, uh, Jacob, who's the host of the Nerd Hurdles podcast, put out a tape with the name, If I Love Jesus, Does That Make Me Gay? Well, obviously, you can get in a lot of trouble if the principal, you know, finds the tape identifies you as the artist behind the tape, connects those dots. So when I was writing in um, high school and writing for a kind of an underground sort of an audience, just, you know, looking to entertain my friends, my thought was that if somebody came across these writings and found them to be objectionable or offensive, at least it wouldn't have my name on it. It would just be the author, which leads to something of a punchline. If the principal were to forcefully ask me or anybody else who had one of these folders in his possession who wrote this you could simply say well it was written by the author so i want to kind of walk you through this and i do this with a great deal of hesitation part of me wants to be real honest get out there and just say hey you know what um i am capable of of being you know a little offensive but the other reason i want to do it is simply to kind of open up the idea that i'm not i'm no saint here if I get something wrong, that's okay. I've been more wrong in my past. So the first of these folders was called Not on the First Date. And I don't have the courage, to be honest with you, to read any of these aloud. So I'm not going to cover any of this material. I'm going to perhaps deal with snippets. The main thing, I think, to give you a sense of what, what the material was like, what kind of humor we're dealing with, is to read titles. And Not on the First Date was divided into two parts. It doesn't look like it's divided in two parts. I suppose from a folder perspective, there's a left-hand pocket and a right-hand pocket that could be perceived as, you know, you know, part one, part two. But really, it's just divided up from a table of contents perspective. Part one has in it the following titles. It's only a movie. Commercials. Poem for the Heartbroken. School Life. And Panties. I'm going to go out on a limb and suggest that the last of those titles is a better indication of the tone than any of the others, although commercials gives you the sense that some sketch comedy is being done here. Part two started off, well really, part two is almost entirely the uh, long work, the magnum opus of this particular uh, writing. It's called The Differences Between a Nice Girl and a Good Girl, and just from memory, it it serves to have some moments in it uh, about encouraging a girl to sit on a piano on the keys so that you can count the number of keys that are depressed to get a sense of, you know, how how many keys she would press down. Kind of gives you a sense of the tone in terms of the uh, T and A focus. Here are the subheadings for the differences between a nice girl and a good girl. And again, I'm not reading it, or at least I'm not reading it today. The basics, bad girls, the way they sit. I think we've already covered that topic. 
smiles and the reasons behind them, innocence, snobbery, actual appearance, what she'll let you see and or touch, the ability to drive you absolutely crazy. I really like the three exclamation points at the end of that one. Conclusion. And then finally, there's a closing that appears to be part of a separate work. So that's not on the first date. And apparently, based on very loose memory, not on the first date was popular enough that there was a call for more. And uh, again, <clears throat> go to a party, have some friends around, dredge up some of this material, typically from memory, I would imagine, and tell a few jokes. But it was really a, kind of a one-shot deal because within the next year, the next release that I did was something called Life in the Big City. And that was far more serious. That didn't have the same jokey tone to it. There was one piece in there called The Successful Graduate that was kind of a diatribe, although albeit a funny one, an angry, funny kind of attack on some very sociopathic behavior that I had been observing. And I really called a couple of fellow students to task for it, the idea being that the successful graduate is going to have these ruthless, um, narcissistic qualities, and I was uh, heaping mock praise upon them. But short of that, it really wasn't designed to be a funny folder, funny work. Mainly, what happened was, is I'd come back from a uh, school trip to San Antonio, Texas, and had been impressed enough by the experiences there that I thought I would do some journaling. So this one's more of a journal than something that was meant for entertainment purposes. I'll still go through the titles, though. The Platonic Back Pocket, a very whiny I believe perhaps the northern English expression would be whingy document about um, not being able to go out with the girl I wanted to go out with. To give you a sense of how much this is more of a diary than anything else, the next entry in this folder was a um, an itinerary for the trip to San Antonio, Texas, along with a, a map of downtown San Antonio. So that's nice. The next major thing in here is uh, a song sheet. Now, this is something that you just have to know me about. I, I can imagine looking at this and imagining that I spent hours, if not longer, coming up with the exact right songs to express my thoughts about the day-by-day -day experiences in San Antonio, which would you know probably be the big city of the title here. Uh, 25 songs in and amongst themselves which recreate, illustrate, and dictate life in the big city. So uh, Thursday, day one. May 1st, and the songs are Waiting for the Bus by ZZ Top, America by Yes, that would be the version, the long version, 25 or 6 to 4 by Chicago, Walk This Way by Aerosmith, specifies the live version. I don't think I still have the album that this live version would have come from, so I'm curious as to why the live version was so important. Dream On by Aerosmith. Wasted Time by the Eagles and Dear Prudence by the Beatles. That's May 1st, Friday, May 2nd, Sweet Emotion by Aerosmith, Before the Dawn by April Wine, totally unknown track to most people from the Harder Faster album, wasn't a single, Feel Like Making Love by Bad Company, Wildfire Woman by Bad Company, Friday ended on a, I must have been in a good mood on Friday, May 2nd, Saturday, May 3rd, this intrigues me, starts off with three songs by, by Led Zeppelin from Led Zeppelin 2, but they're not in the sequence that they would have been in on, on a cassette tape I would have been listening to from like a cassette tape Walkman. 
so I might have made my own cassette and worked the sequence through. Or maybe in retrospect, it just occurred to me that I liked the songs in this order. The Lemon Song is the first one on the Saturday entry, followed by Thank You, followed by What Is and What Should Never Be. Then Stealin' by Uriah Heep, and Part 3 by Ken Hensley. Now, I imagine most people are not going to be familiar with Ken Hensley, but he was one of the members of Uriah Heep. And in the late 70s, maybe early 80s, he put out a couple of really good solo albums. Part 3 is from his uh, album called Eager to Please. Stairway to Heaven by Led Zeppelin, a very predictable track. Followed by On the Radio by Donna Summer. There's a connection you wouldn't predict to occur. And that day ends with Dangerous Type by The Cars. Sunday, May 4th, She's So Selfish by The Knack. Listening to You, The Who, from the movie soundtrack version. So this would be the climax to the movie Tommy. Far Away Eyes by The Rolling Stones. I'm thinking Monday, May 5th was a bad day because the only song on there is Desperado by The Eagles. And on the afterward, it has another Eagles track, um, The Last Resort, along with The Rose, the Bette Midler song from the soundtrack of the same name, and um, The Cupid, Loved You for a Long Time Medley by The Spinners. That's, uh, that's kind of my mindset, give you a sense of kind of what this was like. If you weren't a close friend of mine, or perhaps the girl involved, I'm not sure that these songs would mean anything to you. But if having a a list of songs from a relevant period in the past is of any interest, let me know, because I've got a program planned for um, many months from now away where I do talk a little bit about kind of radio as I think radio ought to be. And so songs play a role in that. Uh, certainly songs play a role in that. But uh, that's the first part of the Life in the Big City collection. The second part, as I mentioned, has the uh, diatribe where I angrily talk about the successful graduate. Now, the one that I find the most interesting is two plus pages, almost two and a half pages of Black Sabbath lyrics that have been cobbled together from different songs and crunched into their own, you know, verse and verse and chorus kind of format. And that's uh, really fascinating to me that I pulled these together in this manner. The other potential issue is that since you know, Black Sabbath albums at the time didn't necessarily have the world's greatest lyric sheets. It's very possible that I don't even have the lyrics right. <laughs> it would have gone simply from listening to music at a very high volume with headphones on or with uh, with my head pressed up against some speakers trying to make out what in the world Ozzy Osbourne was saying. That was the second one. The third one is so controversial that I'm going to set it aside for now and just just give you the title, and I'll talk about it in a minute. It's called Back to the Junior High. But after that, I tried to go back to humor again and um, put out something called School Days. And the interesting thing is that I spelled it uh, S-K-O-O-L-D-A-Z with appropriate punctuation as if it was sort of the transcriptions that you'd find inside a in a, in a dictionary to help you know how to say the words. And this would have been a combination of things from both the junior year and the senior year. And I was making an effort to be humorous again. So this one has uh, two parts, once again. Part one, not so serious, um, which is not to call it funny. And then another one called So Serious, which uh, gives you a pretty good sense of how over the top um, I particularly was at that age in, in high school. The not so serious section starts with a simple failure. 
Then it has songs for the campfire. I'm thinking that's more sketch comedy, a little bit like the commercials one from the, the first folder. Then Dangerous Cats. And Dangerous Cats has quotation marks around it. I have no recollection of any music being written for this, but I think that these, these were lyrics written for a song. And finally, that section ends with the world's greatest farting contest. Now, let me give you a sense of, of how bad some of this humor truly was. A simple failure is, you know, two and a half, three pages of relating a fake history about it's the classic story of, you know, a, a young woman who wants to become an actress goes to the big city to, to make it big in Hollywood or New York and it doesn't work out. I don't know that I'd heard the Al Stewart song, the old Compton street blues from the love chronicles album. I believe I don't know that I'd heard the song back then, but this is essentially that story. The problem with it is it tells this serious tale all the way through only to build up to what would be the punchline. And the punchline is simply she never heard the applause, but she did get the clap. So that's kind of, that's kind of the angle or the level of humor that you're looking at there. Songs from the campfire. Um, one of them is sung to the Tom T. Hall melody. I love, um, I love little baby ducks. That song. I chose something different to rhyme with ducks. I wonder if you can imagine what that might be. And then, um, fascinatingly, the other song from the campfire is to the old French folk song, Alouette, you know, Alouette, Jante Alouette, except in this case, it's contraception. That's the game we play. And there are several rhyming verses about different forms of contraception. That might actually be worth sharing someday, uh, especially if I decide to put out an, an episode with an explicit tag on it. The tag would be necessary. Dangerous Cats doesn't look very good or very interesting. And the World's Greatest Farting Contest goes all the way back either 5th or 6th grade. This is probably a joke I personally can't take all the credit for. Because it would have been me and more than, more than a couple of my friends trying to craft together. And the idea was for some United Nations type purpose to try to engender world peace. Some Olympic sort of an event had been pulled together with representatives from nations all over the world, and the goal was to win the world's greatest farting contest. I mean, whoever did that was going to get the rights to the Panama Canal or something. It was, it was that naively political. And so you saw the main characters who had gotten to this level of the finals, and the event was being hosted by Mexico, perhaps down in, in Mexico City, and the technique that the competitors were going to use to try to guarantee victory. And I won't go into any of the details because they're not that interesting, but one of the characters had decided the best way to guarantee victory was to just put a cork in his anus, stop, stop all action. And that way when contest time came around, he would have, you know, the best build up possible. He would have ensured um, as much as possible that he had, yeah, all the material he needed available to win that particular contest. And when it gets to the climax of the story, he uh, explodes. He, he doesn't make it actually to the point of being able to remove the cork and formally, you know, give his entry in the world's greatest farting contest. He just literally explodes. I think as a result of it, he his country won because he, he you know, he certainly made a big impression. But another one, you get all the way through this long convoluted story only to get to a punchline at the end. And, you know, like the, she never heard the applause, but she did get the clap. The, uh, the punchline at the end of this one was, uh, Eskimo killed by flying cork. <laughs>
So that's pretty much the tone of the comedy that you were getting, even even as late as the uh, end of junior year, beginning of senior year. The So Serious section, the rest of that folder, 10 basic philosophies, none of which strike me as interesting today. Too Good to Be Good, which is a unrequested sequel to the differences between a nice girl and a good girl. Very short. Uh, nowhere near sequel material. More of a appendix, I would say. This would cause a scene is perhaps the most disturbing short story I've ever written. It's not disturbing because of any violence or, you know, supernatural or metaphysical. Anything. It's just a very normal story. It's a very normal boy-girl story. It spooked me a lot because some of the elements of that story started kind of looking a little too real to me. I wrote it and then I began experiencing elements of it and uh, it left a, it left an impression, not a good one. So this would cause a scene. I'm going to hold that con, any more talk about that content until, you know, perhaps much later. The last one is called The Child's Justice. And this was written you know, really before I, I started going out with the woman who is now my wife. This would have been the girl that I dated prior to. And, uh, well, she cheated on me. Um, and I didn't feel good. So I wrote, I had a bad dream about it, and I decided to incorporate the bad dream into some thoughts I had and wrote a short story called A Child's Justice. And it begins with a quote. She has molested the children of my mind, he repeated, the children of my mind. That's kind of the style you're getting in this particular writing. She has molested the children of my mind. And that's A Child's Justice. And that is the collection called School Days. Now, the one that I skipped, and it's important to note that after school days, I actually became much more serious about the journaling. Um, this was the last attempt to be funny or even really ironic. But before this came out, and actually really writing it at the same time that um, the previous release was compiled, the previous release was a cassette tape. Now, I'm not holding that tape right now, so I'm not 100% sure that there's any reason to think that that tape has survived. These folders all fit together in a file cabinet and have managed to move from city to city and house to house. But the cassette tape you know, doesn't fit into a file folder. All I have is what was a table of contents. Now, maybe the scariest thing you're going to hear today is that somebody, um, well, first off, made a tape of a date. That's right. I made a tape of a date that my wife was on. At the time, she was not my wife. And at the time, she was not dating me. But it was a double date. I was going out with a girl who was a little bit younger than I am. Probably uh, probably a ninth grader, hence the name back to the junior high. And the other guy in the car, who was also a year or two younger than me, was dating my wife, or the woman who is now my wife. So I got this transcript of this date. 90-minute cassette tape called Back to the Junior High. Now. The most important thing to understand, and it's not a transcript, it's a, it's a track listing is what it is. So not only did I make a tape that has 45 minutes on the first side, 33 and a half minutes on the second side, but I at some point went back and listened to it and divided the free-flowing dialogue that was going on in this recording into track numbers and, and a track list. Um, that's disturbing on so many levels, so many levels. Um, essentially, if you can remember back before the boom box, 
Back then, a cassette recorder, because this was not voice activated. I wasn't wired like, like I was trying to gather evidence for the FBI. This was just as straightforward as you can imagine. The world's cheapest possible tape. <laughs> no noise reduction, no, no, you know, metallic or chrome or, or anything like that. And it wasn't being recorded on a player that was even capable of, of working with, with Dolby systems. It was the kind of tape that, tape player that you put flat on a table only stands about two and a half inches high at the most with the big clunky buttons on the front of it. So you can play, record, rewind, fast forward. And the tape loads kind of in the top of it. Well, being two, you know, certainly less than three inches thick, this kind of player um, fits underneath the floorboard of a car. So if you put a tape in right when you get in the car, right when you pick up the other couple and you, Find a subtle way to adjust your seat and hit the record button. You can sort of leave this underneath the seat of your car where no one except you and um, at least the game plan was no one except me would know about it. What it really ended up happening was before the end of the night, me and the other guy and my my now wife all knew what was going on. The only one who didn't was my date. So I think I better start with the obvious question. Why in the world would you do that? Why would you tape a date? What what could have led you to think that that was even a good idea? Well, the main thing was not an artistic venture. Uh, that probably doesn't make it any better. When I decided to go out with her, it was shortly after the um, a child's justice girl, the one who'd molested the children in my mind. It was shortly after that whole incident with her. And I didn't have a date. And my family was hosting a New Year's Eve party. So there's going to be a New Year's Eve party. I've got to go to it because it's at my house. And my friend was going out with this girl that I really was quite quite taken by. I was quite impressed by. And he couldn't drive yet. He was a little younger than me. And so he needed a driver. And I thought, well, okay, that works for me. I'll, I'll drive. Uh, I'll be in the presence of this woman that I'm interested in. I'll go out with the girl that I've asked. And um, we'll just all four of us be together. Everyone who knew the two of us kind of had a bad impression of what it might be like for me to go out with this particular girl. And the warnings that I got, and I can't remember who gave them to me, but they came from more than one source. It was both from male friends and from female friends. Either my female friends or perhaps even her female friends said, hey, you've got to be careful. You've got to be on the up and up. You've got to be on your best behavior because every time she goes out with somebody, she comes back with a crazy story about what he tried to do, what he tried to pull. Um, he said this, he did this, he grabbed this, he touched that. It was always, you were always grist for the rumor mill. And that simply going on a date with her was, was just sheer trouble. So I thought to myself, well, first I've got some witnesses. But then I looked to myself, the girl goes to a rival high school, the, the, the girl that uh, I later married. So she wasn't going to be any help in a he said, she said situation. The guy she was going out with never impressed me. He certainly had dubious character in my mind, and no one was going to take his word for anything either. So it just dawned on me that worst case scenario, I make a tape, nothing comes from it. Best case scenario, I make a tape, it's a great night, I have a good time, it's hilarious, everyone thinks it's funny, it becomes the newest release by the author. And somewhere in between was the idea that having a tape like this could exonerate me if there were accusations about some sort of unseemly behavior on my part, or just the existence of the tape could do the trick. 
and to cut straight to the end of the story, that is exactly what happened. The New Year's Eve party was just a couple of days before the end of the Christmas break that winter, and I wasn't back in classes for even half a day before the rumors were coming fast and furious about what Greg said on New Year's Eve during that party or while we were driving from party to party, what Greg tried to pull, what he did, and simply letting it be known that there was a, there was a cassette recording and that the moment that we were out kind of parked together talking, you know, having some, having something to drink, those sort of moments were on tape, that there was a record of it. Well, that cleaned everything up. And there's nothing quite like setting the record straight and cleaning everything up. So that was the, that was the motive. That's a weak excuse. Now let me quickly run through some track list ideas. Um, it starts off with first trip. So that's the other funny thing about me. I've divided this into side one, two, three, and four. I don't think that there was more than one tape. So I must have conceived of it the way you think of albums. And that's, that's gotta be odd. You know, I think if you're a young aspiring musician, and you're going to the basement and you've got your recording equipment and you're going to make your demo tape and you're going to, you're going to, you'll be the next great rock star. There was probably a point in time when you'd go down there and you'd think, well, we're going to record between 10 and 15 songs and we need 60 minutes because, you know, that's a CD. Nowadays, what do you do? Are you simply looking for the perfect MP3? It probably is nothing more than looking for the perfect MP3 file because nowadays the music business is almost a one song at a time venture. Back when I was in high school, the album was king. There were still cassette tapes, and a lot of the cassette tapes were tapes we made ourselves. You'd go to the record store, brand new release would come out by somebody you really liked, you know, Elvis Costello, um, the Boomtown Rats. You, you'd, you'd get it home, you'd make a cassette recording of your album, so that if anything happened to it, if somebody scratched up your vinyl, if somebody took it, left it in the sun and got warped, you still had one, you know, you had a copy. You had something you could take in the car with you, even if you're trying to play it on one of those really crappy cassette players that didn't record very well and didn't play back very well either, because I certainly didn't have a cassette player in my car at the time. So I've conceived of this as being in four sides, and sides one uh, and two and part of three are all the first trip, Midway through side three picks up with the second trip. And I'm not going to name all the song titles because there are tons of them because the seems to be the breaks that I decided to put in were less than two minutes apiece. Passing glasses was the first one. Malt duck. And the idea here was we're driving from one party to another. The New Year's Eve party at my house was obviously not a place where there's going to be any drinking. The second party we went to was at a, a friend's house of the other girl in the car, the woman who's now my wife. And I think that there may have been, may have been beer there. I'm not sure, but really in the car was the best place to store anything that we were planning to drink. And malt duck was, was apparently on the agenda. So we'd hidden some sort of, of a container with ice and cooler in the car. There's another one called uh, three sips, champagne cups. So as opposed to a champagne glass, the, the whole portable New Year's Eve champagne cup, some, Titles that make you wonder, uh, Wicked Witch of the West, Once a Good Girl, those are titles which lend themselves to multiple potential interpretations. The only one I have any memory of is called Mama's Wondering, and it actually makes me kind of wish I, I had that cut available to me as, as an MP3 file or something, because it really was hilarious. My wife 
sitting in the back seat, very unsure about the guy that she's dating, equally unsure about the guy in the driver's seat. Clearly, I'm, I'm taping this date. Is more nervous the more the night goes on because she's not sure about the behavior of the guy that she's dating. There's alcohol involved. There's driving and alcohol involved. It, it's all just sort of, it's not, not an ideal situation. The girl I was going out with was really kind of living it up. She was having a good time. She was going out with an older guy. It was, we're going to multiple parties. She was having a good time. And he got the impression that she hadn't really given, been given permission to go out on this kind of a wide open New Year's Eve, do what you will kind of a, a date to parties before. So in one moment, she's holding up a champagne glass. She's the only one in the car who had an actual glass uh, of champagne. She's holding up a champagne glass. I'm assuming it just had the, the malt duck in it, which was kind of a precursor to what we call a wine cooler, what we would have called at the time a wine cooler. Holding it up inside the car, kind of to where you could see the liquid inside on a street, against a street light. And she says, Mama, I hope you're wondering what I'm up to right now. And in the background, you can hear the other girl say, I hope mine's not. And even though this recording was, you know, on a really crappy tape, being made on a really crappy tape player, stuffed underneath the car seat, because again, at least one person in the car, totally unaware that any recording was even being done. In that situation, it picked up the sound well enough that in my mind, when I played that for a couple of friends and offered to play it for the girl that I'd gone on that first and only date with, it just seemed to me that it sounded like it was meant to be. So it got named back to the junior high. And when I mentioned at the beginning of this show that I'm not a saint, I've got a lot to be embarrassed about, and that no one should be taking me as if I'm coming at any topic I discuss from a mountaintop with a high opinion of myself. No. Dismiss all those ideas. I'm the guy who taped a date. Now, I eventually married one of the girls in the car that night, but I'm still the guy who taped who taped a date. I have two more folders from the author to talk about. And when I do this, I want to talk about the author getting serious, and I want to introduce the segment that we're going to use in this show going forward. Every week, I intend to bring out somebody that I'm going to point to and lift up as a different drummer. So here in just a minute, we're going to talk about different drummer. Nerd Hurdles, the podcast that encourages you to dork in, nerd on, and geek out. I'm Jacob. And I'm Mandy. We talk about stuff that's too nerdy for people to like. Sometimes we drift off topic. We have to actually be on topic to drift off it. You make a good point. Nerd Hurdles. Different drummer is the idea that there are unique individuals who march to the beat of a different drummer. I think I'm capable of speaking in cliché that I probably could go through an entire program like this, just rattling off one cliche after another. The more you know about music and movies and pop culture, the better you would be. And perhaps you've even caught me at it in this show alone. I do it unwittingly. But there is an old saying about, you know, this person marches to the beat of a different drummer. And that always thought that fit me well, because I've been accused, self-accused actually in the past, of being a creature from another planet. I just don't necessarily feel that I fit in with the world that I'm living in. Something about me is a little bit different. And that is at times, especially these high school times, made me an observer. 
of the world that I'm in because I don't necessarily feel like I'm part of it. That if there is a script, I don't have the script. So different drummer is a more positive spin on that as opposed to being just really strange and totally out there and not connected at all. It's the idea that some people blaze their own trail. So for me, different drummer is not just those folks who march to the beat of a different drummer. It's actually the people who are the drummer. One step beyond doing your own thing is being somebody who does your own thing in such a way that inspires others to follow along to your music. So after this week's show, beginning with the next show, I'm going to start calling out people, and they are going to be a great variety. Probably not so many from the politics area, some from the religion area, but quite a few maybe from popular culture to deal with those people that I personally have found inspirational and to let you know exactly why. Part of that reflects what's going on with with the author here, because I have two works with the author left to talk about. One is called Freedom of Expression. Freedom of Expression is actually what I refer to as the author's last work, a journal written at the end of my senior year that was so deathly serious that I wouldn't have shared it with anybody even if they'd wanted to read it. I had serious works before that friends were interested in, but I really didn't didn't spread this one too far and wide because it came from a place with a great deal of hurt, a great deal of anger, and it's perhaps the most vulnerable thing, among the most vulnerable things that I've ever written. I talk about it as being freedom of expression senior year, and it's interesting to me that uh, the subscript is called Why Not? And that was really kind of the the mantra that I was dealing with. The very first paragraph of the very first entry actually says, I don't care anymore. I tried to convey the exclamation point there. hope I did a good job. I don't care anymore. I don't care because caring, the act, has become more important than the actual emotions. What began as something beautiful in a weird kind of way has now turned weird in a beautiful kind of way, but I don't see the point. Now that the writing is over and the work is done, I'm only left to wonder, and I wonder alone. So it's got that kind of, again, more of the youthful whinging kind of a voice to it. The actual works in this one, to start, April 16th, verse, which just says May, because it was written in three parts. Ironically, part one first, but part three second, and the middle part was was done at the end. Just a little letter of explanation. April 25th, described as a formal apology, explanation, and invitation, all rolled into one and never delivered. The next entry is, I love, and isn't it a shame that it had to be you? That gives you a pretty good feel for the tone. May 13th. And the last entry in this particular folder was just called To Finish, and it's got the date of April 23rd on it. This is one of the folders that I actually put a quote box in. So if you received this and I gave it to you, the title would be on the front, but when you open up the middle, there's a big, bold writing that says, hey, this is the idea behind this. This is the, the one thought that sums it all up. And the quote box on this one says, I just wish the beauty I want to express would shine brighter than the peculiarity of expression. I don't know why. And again, freedom of expression, why not? That was written in my senior year in high school. And at that time, I declared the author to be dead. I even wrote a probably a 14-page surrealist short story that was essentially the author's epitaph. I wrote a 
uh, an obituary notice for him, for want of a better word. But the end of my senior year in college, you got to jump forward four or five years. I resurrected the idea of the author because I ended up writing a very similar work. Instead of being negative and dominated by a persecution complex, this one was positive, and I called it Different Drummer. So the connection, which is why I wanted to share a little bit of history and background about the author, is because I can't think of the concept of Different Drummer without connecting it back to the author and these works that I wrote when I was very young, very immature, and not particularly accomplished. I'm not going to go into any of the contents of Different Drummer. Just a couple peculiarities about it is that most of the entries here are maintained by date, like you would a diary entry. And instead of titling them, the contents page simply lists the first line of each entry. So February 4th says this is either the third or fourth journal. Then sort of stops there. Well, it's not the complete sentence. The complete sentence says something more like, this is either the third or fourth journal I have written for personal use. The others were set on a temporary basis like the 13-day journal that only lasted nine. So it's kind of that sort of tone. Again, very very much a journaled work. But in that journaling, I thought it was kind of curious that I chose what I might call a hymn book methodology for using the table of contents, because most hymns, if you've ever really looked at them, don't really have a title per se. Most of the time, the title of a hymn is the first line of the first verse of the hymn. So it's kind of that. This one also has a title card in it, a kind of a quote box. And the quote box is probably a good way to end this particular show. Here it goes. Honesty is not the best policy because of the problems caused by lying. Honesty is the best policy because of the incredible, powerful feeling it generates. Now, don't get me wrong. There could be no doubt that there's huge advantages being honest, when it comes to the pitfalls of lying. The old adage is that every time you tell a lie, it forces you to remember. You know, so there's a negative implication. So honesty is a good policy because it keeps you from having to keep your story straight. But this particular work, this different drummer work, had a lot to do with my feeling that honesty was the best policy because there is a great deal of power when you can look at somebody and say, hey, here is a piece of my life. Here is something about who I am that I don't have to share with anybody, but I'm choosing to share it with you. You are giving of yourself in a way that's, that really genuinely can't be faked. Oftentimes, this kind of honesty has a certain level of embarrassment to it. I mentioned in the very first show that I believe the truth is always ultimately pretty, but I'm not naive enough to think that there are aren't elements of the truth that are really, really embarrassing. Hey, I'm the guy who taped a date. I think I can get away with almost anything at this point. And hopefully I'm doing it in an honest way. Thank you for joining me for this second installment of Inappropriate Conversations. If you'd like to put some dialogue into this conversation, you can come to the website, inappropriateconversations.podbean.com, or send me an email IC underscore Greg, G-R-E-G, at hotmail.com. That's IC Greg, IC underscore Greg, at hotmail.com. Thanks for listening. Next week, we'll be back with perhaps a more ordinary example of inappropriate conversations.